there's burlesque, there's boylesque, there's queerlesque. It's very much a subject that encompasses a lot of people, but by definition, usually attracts flamboyant, creative types um, who are excellent at turning up and showing up for themselves as well. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less travelled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. To many people, the world of burlesque may seem distant and quite unknown. If you've never been to a burlesque show, you might not really know what it's all about. You might have heard of Dita Von Teese, but how much do you know about the art of it, the glamour and the people who are, by all accounts, a brilliant bunch of welcoming human beings? My guest today is Tiggs Rice, who combines her career as a burlesque and boudoir photographer with an ambition to leave her mark on the world creatively. She has shot for Cosmopolitan and produced work that the Huff Post described as the most diverse lingerie shoot of its time. But like many of my guests, she didn't expect to end up where she is. Tiggs harboured a strong desire to be a forensic pathologist, and it was only circumstances that led her to art college and then into photography. She's an amazing advocate for people celebrating their bodies, taking pride and joy in what society may view as physical flaws, but are often actually a sign of strength and resilience. Tiggs is a storyteller of the highest order, not just through photographs. She's also an amazing interviewee and just a really fun person. Enter the podcast, Tiggs Rice. Well, I grew up in Edgware. I was born in Edgware, sort of stayed around the area with my parents until I was, gosh, the second I could leave the house. uh, I did actually say to my parents as a kid, that I, I was so fiercely independent. I'm like, I'm going to get up and 18, I'm going to leave the house. I'm going to go to university and I'm going to move out and be completely independent. And I remember them laughing and going, <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, but actually I was, I was, uh, I was out, out the house by, uh, by 21. So it wasn't that far off. I was an incredibly sporty, adventurous little Tiggs. Um, I, I did gymnastics, I played instruments, I, you know, any any excuse to get out of the house and play in the garden or have competitions, like sports competitions with my brother, it was that that was me. It was any adventure that I could get get my hands on, uh, I'd go out and go out and do. I love that. That's so like me. I was a very adventurous child as well. And also that thing of like, I can do it is like the mantra for childhood, I think, if you're quite an adventurous kid. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, my parents often said to me that I didn't break the rules, but I'd just be on the right side of the rule. Like I'd be, you know, that gray area between like, yeah, you're not quite on the right side anymore. Like I, I literally lived in that in that path. <laughs> And did you consider yourself like a rebellious person or was it just that you knew where the boundaries were and you were right up to them? 
I think I was just really keen on creative expression. Um, like I am, I'm very much one of those person, one of those people that does play by the rules, but I will test where they are. And were you quite a confident child? Eventually I was, I think I was, I, I very much was when I was growing up. Um, apparently when I went to nursery, I was the first one through the door and I didn't, I didn't cry. I was straight in, no goodbyes, anything. Um, but I got bullied really badly in, oh, how old is year four? What's that? Like eight, nine? I am, um, I, I don't think I was necessarily overweight, but my body type is very um, endomorph. So, you know, I'm very, very muscular. I have wide hips. And so when I was growing up and I developed quite young, as well so I had all this like muscle and sort of curves very early on and you know it it just showed so I was being bullied for a lot of that and being different and apparently I was my my one of my teachers actually said uh, that I was a glum child but by the time I was in high school oh my gosh yeah neon pink knitting shirts and I dyed my hair um I, I, I used to put red semi-permanent hair dye over blonde hair um, to make like a flame orange. Um, so I also got called in for that well um, for setting a trend of <laughs> setting a trend of colored hair in school. Something clicked in me around around sort of 10, 11 and I'm like I just I don't care what people think anymore. Um, and then yeah, I was just not rebellious, I'd say, but I just, you know, I was the one that wore the bright things and stood out from a crowd and didn't necessarily fit in a clique. And I loved it. It was amazing. <laughs> it's incredible to have that insight at 10 or 11, though, because I think for most people, and I would definitely include myself in this, being a teenager was the time at which the last thing you wanted to do was stand out. You know, like I think most people are desperate to fit into a crowd, not maybe even just in their teenage years, but in life in general. And actually to have an insight at the age of 10 or 11 to think, I don't care what other people think of me, to me is absolutely incredible because I was the opposite and I was so desperate to be liked by other people, desperate to fit in with everybody else and be like everybody else. I find it amazing when I meet people like you who at that age are just like, no, this is me. I'm going to have orange hair. I'm going to wear a pink net top. Go figure. I I think it I it must have just stemmed from the experience that I had um and I think I because of the bullying I think I realized that I wasn't going to get I clearly wasn't going to get the attention from that source. So something had to change inside me. It's like, well if I'm not getting it, I'm just going to have to change that mindset that I'm just going to do what I want because if I can't please them trying, then I might as well not bother. You know, it's almost like when you don't fit in, you can be friends with everybody because you don't have you don't have to fit in with a specific type of person. And so it then became that I ended up in this in this place where everyone knew, knew me and would say hello. You know, I wouldn't have a group that I could say every weekend we're going to go out and we're going to be BFFs forever. And, you know, we're going to do this and go there and whatever. But I ended up being surrounded by this incredible group of very different people that I might only hang out with one of them at a time but every weekend I'd be doing something different with someone else um and yeah it was amazing I think once once I leaned in it was I knew I was in the right place um but yeah I I, I do feel lucky that I found that as early as I did 
And I read in another interview you gave that you wanted to potentially be a forensic anthropologist when you were young. That is some good research. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? (laughs) (laughs) I love that you wanted to be bones. Tell me a little bit about that. Where did that fascination come from? And and how seriously did you think about kind of science and anthropology and things like that? So seriously. Um, So actually, it started when I was in high school and I decided that I wanted to be a brain surgeon, neurosurgeon. And uh, my parents very rightly said to me, you are so clumsy when you're tired. We do not think this is the career for you. (laughs) And uh, that's probably one of the best things that they've ever talked me out of doing. Uh, So you can all thank them for that later. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, I was I was very interested in science. Uh, My dad was an engineer. um, So I grew up with a lot of science around me um, and I really enjoyed it. I was lucky that I had really awesome science teachers all the way through school uh went to uh, went to college and I was doing human biology and psychology um so I was setting myself up basically to do it and then when we got to our final exam it turned out that we had been taught the wrong syllabus and so the entire year group failed like I got the second highest and I got a d oh my god yeah and so at the same time, I'd also been doing graphics and fine art. I either went backwards or went forwards. And at that time in my life, I was like, oh, I just want to move forwards. So I'll do my foundation year in art, see how it goes. If I still feel really strongly about the forensics, I'll go back and do it. Um, but then I did my foundation art degree and absolutely loved it and kept kept going that way, I guess. I probably ended up on the right path for me. Um, but yeah, it was a serious dream for a long time um like a good sort of four or five years you did you went off to art college as you said and and you did digital illustration and studied that and and that was your kind of thing at college at what point did photography start to play its role in your career was that something you picked up at college or had you had an interest in that before like can you remember owning your first camera for example I do remember my first camera in fact I actually have a copy of the first photo I ever took uh I need to I need to find it so um my brother and I both got cameras at the same time. They were matching cameras and they gave them to us at Christmas. And the first photo that we took, it's awful, is both of us standing in my aunt's corridor, like in the hallway by the stairs. And we've both taken a photo at the same time with both our flashes going off. So there's one of him and there's one of me both taking these really awful photos. Um, but I do. there is a print of it somewhere, either in my belongings or my parents, um, of the first photo that I ever took. Um, but yeah, and then I had cameras, you know, those little digital like pocket cams that everyone had in the like nineties and noughts. And I, I had one of them that went everywhere. Um, and I bought my first, my first proper camera when I was in college doing my foundation degree. And it was one of the modules that I had chosen to take. Um, but again, because it was foundation and everyone else who was doing it had already done the A-level in it. I was a year behind at least, if not two. Um, And they were already doing all their darkroom processing and chemical mixing. And I loved it, but I just, I always felt behind. So I didn't quite, it it just, yeah, it, it wasn't the right time for me and cameras. So I then went on and did my degree in illustration. And I, I chose that because 
uh, they said that as long as you could present whatever your final piece was in two dimensions, it counted as an illustration, which meant I could work in any medium I wanted. So by the time I got to my third year, um, I I was waning a bit in terms of interest. Um, like I needed a different outlet to get me through the final year. So I picked up a camera. Um, they had one in the photography department because because I wasn't a photography student I could only have like this this the b grade kit rather than the a grade kit so I got given this 450d that I could borrow and the dial on the top was broken so it would only work in I can't I can't remember what mode it was in but it would only work in one mode um uh, the only lighting I could borrow was like tungsten lamps so like the yellowy stuff you get in like your lounge uh and I couldn't hire the studio uh so I had to set up a white bed sheet in a cupboard and take <laughs> take all my clients well not clients at that time but models uh in into a uh <laughs> into a windowless cupboard in the university um but yeah I did that for a little while and then obviously this camera wasn't working hugely well so I bought my first digital DSLR which was a Canon 450D and uh, I had that camera for years and um, I I ended up teaching myself how to use it through Google um, and my technical mind was like, okay, I have to, I have to understand how this works in manual mode. So I was like Googling aperture and what does depth of field mean? And, you know, why does this aperture go the, the different way to what you think it does and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, and it just started a bit of a love affair with with photography from there really it's amazing so it suffice to say that your photography career didn't get off to the most auspicious start but I really love the fact that you (laughs) I love that when I chat to women about their careers and that sometimes it's the unobvious route that is often the winning one and and when you look back you know it's really wonderful sometimes to look back on your career through the benefit of hindsight but actually if things are you know teaching yourself that gives you a different appreciation for it and and actually the skills that you've picked up through self-teaching in the early days means that you're more likely to stick at it because you've actually had to kind of put the effort in I guess takes did you would you agree with that yeah um it definitely because I was having to go out and look for the information it, it involved more to get to where I needed to go and it was you know actually buying books on the subject and it was worth every moment that I spent googling the internet to find it for sure and so how did your photography career kind of take off so you finished college you know you've got your degree you've done your digital you've done digital illustration etc etc how did you get going as a photographer because I think it's one of those things that often photographers are freelance we know that London is an expensive place to live you're in your early 20s it was post the global financial crisis, <laughs> you know, how did you kind of get on the ladder and get going? Because I imagine at that time, getting into the working world was not easy. It was rough. I uh, I think that's the best way to describe it. Uh, it was 2009 that I graduated. Um, it was literally peak recession at that point. Um, and I think there's a Oh, there was, I don't know about now, but there was a there was a common misconception at the time that you'd go to your graduate show, you'd put on all your work and an agent would turn up and go, you're amazing, I'm going to hire you. And 
life would be sorted. And that definitely didn't happen for me, um, especially because my graduate show, there was a tube strike and we were in central London displaying. So no one came. Uh, so, you know, that it, it wasn't even a, I'll wait and see if the phone will ring. It wasn't going to ring. Um, so I had, I'd done this final project and I'd had about 10 models for that who were a mix of like friends and colleagues from my part-time job and a couple of friends had seen it and like because it was actually a book and I did sell a good sort of handful of copies of the book I was saying oh you know we really like the photos would you consider photographing us like that like sure like you know why not so I had some friends volunteering and did an extra couple of projects on it and each time they got a little bit better because I'd learned how to use the camera a bit better and I think it was 2010 I think it might have been 2011 um I was working part-time doing whatever jobs I could find to sort of support myself and I was proactively emailing everyone that I could find like I'd send five proactive emails 10 proactive emails a day um, just trying to find anyone that would really take me on. Um, the in- the industry was so bad at that point that, you know, you couldn't even get a job in a pub. Like, so um, I happened to send some emails and normally I'd get a, I'll, you know, we'll put you on file. We'll see if something comes up. And I got one of them and thought, thought not much of it. And then the next day they got back in touch and like, actually our photographers dropped out for a press event. Would you mind coming in? photographing an event for us uh it's not paid but we'll cover your travel and you know you'll have a good night and yeah just send us some photos after so I went and it happened to be uh, a big burlesque festival um and I walked in and was like oh my god these are my people and uh, I was just so many lovely people and they were so welcoming and you know come stand with us come meet everyone that I know and I took the photos had such a good time um and then I managed to convince them to let me back for the rest of the week so this was Tuesday and it ran till the Sunday and so I went to the entire week's worth of shows um made so many contacts and that year I got 150 clients within the burlesque scene um off the back of doing this one we're not going to pay you but here's some travel money um uh yeah and so through just the power of networking and just being in the right place and making those opportunities happen managed to launch a career off it and just one back question you said that your your project had been turned into a book and that people liked the style that you were shooting in what was your original kind of idea concept etc the book was uh it was called wonderland it was based loosely on alice in wonderland um but I had met someone through one of my part-time jobs that I was doing who was a recovering addict um, with Narcotics Anonymous. And it talks about how an addiction is like a hole in the soul. So it was loosely based around that. And it was a version of her life story that she'd written that we then, um, I would say more illustrated. Um, so it was it was actual photos of people, but they were uh, digitally manipulated to look like illustrations and created all these fancy digital backdrops of like cornfields and, you know, like those really fancy like regal buildings. Like it was one of them. So I'd like even gone to as far as to find the right uh, skirting boards and floorboards and stuff to build these. It was nuts. I can't believe how many hours I spent on it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I'd sized it all up, got these books printed, and I had uh, I had one that I put together as my final major project. There's this amazing, amazing man called Dr. Leo de Freitas, who was one of my mentors at uni, but also happened to be really well linked with Lewis Carroll Society and like a massive Alice in Wonderland fan club. And uh, he was like, are those books for sale? And I was like, well, I mean, they can be. Um, <laughs> Quick, get some printed. <laughs> so he ordered a book um, and I. <laughs> it meant so much to me that he ordered one that I never actually cashed the check. <laughs> um, but then he put me in touch with um, the actual Lewis Carroll Society as well. And I got to do a full book presentation speaking and I had a residency in an Oxford bookstore in the centre of Oxford. Uh I think the summer probably the summer after because of timings um so yeah it was again it it never meant to be it never meant to be more than the one book but I somehow ended up in this situation where people were like oh we like that can we buy that and can we stand in front of your camera it's amazing amazing I love that story and just circling back to um the burlesque what I I love the idea of you walking in and being like I found my tribe and tribes definitely something we've covered before on this podcast for anyone that hasn't listened to the episode with Monique Hodgson um we definitely talked about finding your tribe there um what is it about burlesque that you really love and for people who don't know much about it can you just talk a little bit about what burlesque is and what the community is like Tiggs yeah so burlesque is the well, it's the art of the tease. Um, and most of the time it involves taking off layers of clothing. Uh, not necessarily all the way. There are some incredible burlesque performers that can spend 15, minute, 15 minutes tantalizingly taking off a glove, for example. If you have seen like Betty Page, uh, Dita Von Teese, that sort of era, so very like 50s pinup and when they're doing the stocking peels, um, it's, a, it's a lot of that. Uh, but it's also very political as well, um, very politically charged. So acts can be from anything from enjoying the female form and very classical in terms of their beauty to real political statements as well. I can definitely, if anyone wants to know more, uh, get in touch and I can always guide you in the direction of some shows. It's a very diverse group of humans. Um, there's burlesque, there's boylesque, there's queerlesque. It's very much a subject that encompasses a lot of people but by definition usually attracts flamboyant creative types um, who are excellent at turning up and showing up for themselves as well so when I walked into this event it was at Café de Paris uh, which is now closed um, but it's in Piccadilly in central central London and it's a really glamorous ballroom modeled on the Titanic with the double staircase um, and it had a stage at the other end and like this huge chandelier so you've got this like chandelier and all these lights flashing around and like lush carpet and I'm just finding myself in a, in a room of people that are like dripping in glitter and sequins and champagne and just having the time of their life uh, but they're also very inclusive as well so it was the first time that I'd sort of really walked in and felt like a part of something. And it didn't matter that I didn't look the same as everyone else because it doesn't matter to them that you look like every, everyone else. Um, so yeah, it was just, you ever have that feeling of like feeling like you've hit, you found home. It was, it was that in an instant. 
I love that. I love that. I've interviewed Tempest Rose recently, who runs House of Burlesque, <gasps> and yes. um, and Lolo Brow. They run a podcast together. And Salt. Big shout out to Gin Salt. For anyone who hasn't listened to that as a podcast, it's brilliant. The first time I went to Burlesque was in New York about 10 years ago. Absolutely loved it. Where did you go? The Slipper Room? I couldn't tell you the name. I was drunk. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was visiting some friends who took me. You know when you're like, I'm just going to go. I'm in tow. Don't really know where I'm going, but I'm going anyway. Um, It was brilliant. It was really fun. And for anyone who hasn't been to Burlesque, if you... If, even if you don't think it's your thing, I just think it's something that everyone should experience. And I really, truly believe that there's it's it's an art and it is, like you say, very, very inclusive as well. So it's definitely a place where lots of people can kind of find their niche, I think. So you've got 150 clients off that one event, which is incredible. And you've subsequently gone on to build your business. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, I've got so much I want to talk about with your photography business. But do you want to talk a little bit about... Um, what you do now and what the kind of ethos of your business is takes from starting in the burlesque world and obviously photographing a lot more people within that scene um again I was being asked more and more if I could bring that to non-models non-performers so uh the general everyday fearless human that would want to stand in front of a camera so that business has developed from being probably more purely a burlesque photographer to empowering women femmes and non-binary folk to show up for themselves and reconnect with their bodies and celebrate existing in photos so that part of the business has been running now for 12 years um but on the side I've also been involved over the years with a number of branding and corporate commercial clients so taking what I had been doing in that world and applying that to the commercial side of things. So one of the campaigns, one of the earliest ones I did was for Cosmopolitan. And it was it was burlesque themes, but it was showing body confidence in a range of in a range of humans. Um, and showing how your body can look many ways um, and you still deserve to feel and look amazing. Um, and then I think it was 2015, 2016, around that point, Um, I did a campaign for Scantily, which is part of Curvy Kate. And uh, it was actually dubbed by Huffington Post as one of the the most inclusive lingerie campaigns. Um, Obviously, there are incredible humans now doing so, so much more as well. Um, But at that time, it was great to be involved in projects that were showing a range of bodies and differently abled bodies and different size bodies and it had different genders as well in there as well so you know it was so important to me to start bringing that along to the commercial side I hadn't really ever had time to kind of split it off but then lockdown happened uh and I I I had some time on my hands so (laughs) branding by Tiggs which is now the commercial side um now exists which is personal branding and corporate and commercial photography as well to help badass brands turn up and show up authentically to their audiences as well. So yeah, what started as the humble photo shoot in a cupboard is now everything from celebrating your life wins to helping the industry be more diverse and representative as a whole. And I was going to touch on that kind of corporate aspect of things because you have been an ambassador for Adobe as well, I read. And you've obviously quite neatly melded 
the creative and the corporate, which sometimes I think are portrayed as being quite opposite. Um, and, and often there'll be a perception of artistic and creative people as being quite anti-corporate. How have you kind of woven those two things together during your career and, and as part of your business takes? Because I think that's a bit of a skill in its own right, isn't it? Yeah. I, do you know what? I've never really put much thought into how it's worked. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to preface this with, I've never really thought about it. Honestly, I think it's been about being authentically true to myself. Um, I've never taken on a corporate brand that I don't I don't feel sits with what I want to be in the world. And sometimes that means saying no to some incredible opportunities. Um, but I guess the creative side of me is has always been I want to do good in this world and I want to I, I want to leave a legacy that I'm proud of. Um, so I've definitely been very careful about which commercial brands um, or any corporate entities that I've sort of partnered up with. But that also means that once you once you get down a line, like someone said to me once, your portfolio should always show what you want to be shooting for the next six months. And so I worked really hard on making sure that everything that I was showing has always been the direction that I want to continue going in. And sometimes that means me having to put the effort to create things off my own back to make sure that I'm pushing in, in that right direction. Um, I don't think that I treat my, I, I don't think there's any difference with how I treat my commercial clients with how I treat my private clients. I like them all to have the same experience. So it's really important for me that whatever the commercial client is getting, the, the private client is getting as well. So to me, it's one process just with a, with a couple of different outcomes. But often the my corporate work is the same audience as the private stuff. You know, at the end of the day, it's that same target market that I'm appealing to, but I'm trying to just, you know, make the world a better place for them in all, in all ways, I guess. I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel that people feel that they have to put on a front in certain work scenarios. And I have probably been guilty of that in the past, I think, is that you feel like you have to be a certain way for certain people professionally. And actually, if you just bring your true self in a professional manner, the same all the time, you're going to create the best business or be the best that you can at work because you're not having to pretend all the time, which actually is really tiring. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, I I like to think, I would hope, I, I feel like most people would say it, that I'm the same person in 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 all aspects uh I might be a bit more silly in my personal life because I like to have a bit of fun but you know showing up with that professionalism and you know and even things like there are times in life where you just have to push yourself out of the comfort zone and there's so there's like that sitting with that little bit of anxiety of I'm outside my comfort zone but I'm going to show up with professionalism and a can-do attitude um and then there's not showing up as your authentic self and I feel like it's we've all been in situations where that's happened or we've taken something on or a project where we're like oh like this just it isn't sitting right my gut does my gut's telling me that I've made the wrong decision um and I have had a few of those like we all have like it's business like you know sometimes the money looks great and we're like oh I could do that and you're like, oh I can't um and so it's recognizing it's recognizing where that is and we all make mistakes going through business we all take on the odd thing that but the main thing is learning from that and growing from it and going forward I've had I've had a few a few jobs like that over the years like 
they just make you feel like your little gut goes and it's it's such hard work not being yourself it's harder it's harder than anything you know don't you and I I love to talk about intuition and you know I've somebody who's always just gone on gut instinct with everything and I think in the past same I used to think that that was a bit of a flaky way of going about life and actually I would have been a bit embarrassed to be like oh sorry I'm kind of my gut says that that's not right. But actually now I think it's become, if not a bit trendy, then certainly more acceptable that we talk about intuition being a positive thing. And, you know, gut instinct, quote unquote, has has kind of had a bit of a resurgence. Yeah. You kind of just know whether something is right or not. And I think particularly in business, following that intuition and following that, that gut instinct it's almost never wrong, is it? No, I can't say that I've ever done anything on gut instinct that I've regretted. Mm, it's interesting. It's when I overthink things that I come under, I, I, that's when the problems are. When I sit and overanalyze something, it's been very, very rare. I think there's been two ever when I've just gone, you know what? I need to walk away. Here's the money back. This isn't for me. I, I was lucky in those situations that I could do that. You know, the contract allowed it and the client was fine with it. But if you have that from the very get-go, sometimes it's it's okay to say no. And I think that's that's the big lesson that I've learned as well, is it is okay to say no to things. But it's very hard as a freelancer as well, I think, and particularly when you're in the early stages of your business, turning work down is really difficult. Yes. And I think having the confidence to do that, particularly if you're under financial pressure, as you said, is very, very hard. And I know lots of people who've been in a situation and if this is you as a listener, don't feel bad that you've taken things because you need the money because that happens to everyone. Like yeah, lots of times you're not in a luxurious position to say no to the money. You just have to do it. I think I, I think it was uh, Lisa Johnson who was saying the other day, you get the work that you need and then once you've got what you need, you then work on what you want. You know, when we all start out, we we have food to put on a table and bills to pay. Mm. And so if women are interested in boudoir photography, to a lot of people who haven't done that before, that would be really out of comfort zone. It, particularly if you never had any involvement in burlesque, you've never had any involvement in boudoir, it would be very new. What do you aim for with women when they come to you and say, Tiggs, I want to have a go at this? Like, what can they expect? And what are your aims as the photographer in that scenario? So my aim is to always work within your comfort levels. So boudoir doesn't necessarily have to be all clothes off, basking in glorious golden sunshine. You know, it can be anonymous. It can be clothed. Um, Some of my clients wear full length sequin gowns and just show a little bit of leg. Um, Some of them turn up. I had one the other day who turned up in a T-shirt, like a... um, unisex t-shirt that had the word bulky on the front and then it was just tied sort of loosely at the at the um belly button and then with a pair of like hot pants on so you know there's boudoir is so encompassing uh effectively it's celebrating your body and how you connect and how you feel about your body so we'll work within your comfort zones to create some images that help you show off the favorite assets of your body and celebrate them and the fact that you exist and deserve to exist in print so a lot of my clients I find um they for the first time they come in front of the camera it might be because they've always been the one taking the photos 
um, or they have come to a point where they're like, actually, you know what, I want to start leaving a legacy for myself um, and existing. So it might be I've hit this age. Uh, I have, I'm just about to get married and I want to celebrate my single, my single status before I get married. I get people who are like, I've just got out of a relationship and I want to celebrate the fact that I am not another half in quotation marks. I am a whole person. And so we can celebrate everything from, you know, literally any life event. But what I love is that everyone comes in feeling really nervous and self-conscious and don't get me wrong. It's, it's awful thinking about the fact that you're going to be in a room with a stranger with a camera who's going to be taking photos of you from about four meters away while you're not wearing very much clothing. But it's such a lovely process coming in, being pampered, getting your hair done, getting your makeup done, spending an hour and a half chatting with us while that's going on and getting to know us and becoming friends. And then you get into something that makes you feel absolutely incredible. And you've got me telling you how amazing you are and being your personal cheerleader and finding poses that make you feel so good about your body and then being able to see photos of you going oh my god I actually like this is how good I look and this is this is how other people see me like this is the beauty they see in my body that's worthy of photographs and that is so powerful um and I try and do it myself and get in front of the camera like once a year to just remind myself of that feeling because there's just nothing better than just having that moment where you just focus on you and reconnect with yourself. God, I'm doing so much smiling into the microphone while you're talking. You really are. <laughs> I was just like, I love this. I love this. I want to come and have a photo shoot with Tiggs. It sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> you should. We'll, we'll book it later. Like, I'm just thinking all of those things. There's so many women out there who are not comfortable with their body, who do not like the way they look and men too, to be fair. And, you know, the idea of spending time gathering some shots that you're going to treasure for life, even if you don't hang them on your wall, they're a personal record for you and you alone. It doesn't actually even matter if you like them at the time they're taken. And that's something that I've learned about my own body. Um, I've had I've had several shoots. I actually posted one during lockdown of a shoot that I had several years ago. Um, and at the time, don't get me wrong, I didn't hate them, but at the same, I just didn't resonate with them. And it's taken me a couple of years to connect with who I was then, because the photos to me showed me, in, this specific shoot showed me in a vulnerable way. The photographer had caught me in a way that I wasn't used to seeing myself in. Um, and it was a shock and I didn't post them anywhere. And it's taken me two to three years to kind of go, you know what, actually, I'm never going to look that young again. My skin's never going to be like that again. Um, but also right now in the last 15 months when we've been going through a global pandemic, I really I really connect with that vulnerable me. Um, and so those right now are the most authentic photos that I feel like exist of me. Whereas there are other ones that I love straight away and I'm like, yeah, I look strong. I look fierce. Look at me holding my own in a doorway with my killer abs that I had at the time I don't have those right now me neither but that aside um <laughs> it's been a long lockdown but, you know <laughs> yes but all of those versions of me are me and so I think it's also important to document those moments in life um and my favorites are the ones that are coming out of recovery so I have some clients that have shot with me pre-op 
and then have then shot with me post-op documenting their journey to recovery and how their body has changed and is strengthening. So like the first time we shot after surgery, some of them might not be able to kneel or lie on their hip or something, um, or their scars are showing for where they've had surgeries and sort of like, especially like mastectomies. Um, you know, it takes a while for the scarring to go, but just documenting that process of how your body has followed you on that journey. It's, it's pretty special. Just finally, if people are interested in your work, I will put links in your show notes, in the show notes, so people can find you. But give us a quick flavour of the best platforms and how people can contact you, because I'm sure I know you do lots of mentoring and you're very keen on supporting other women as well. Where can people find you and get in touch? If you want boudoir, then you can find me at tigsrice.com or at tigsrice on Instagram. Uh, you find all of my links through those two. Uh, if you want the branding and the corporate side um, or any mentoring, anything like that, you can find me at brandingbytigs.com or at brandingbytigs. There you go. So look Tiggs up. She's absolutely amazing. And if you have, if you want a flavour of the kind of work that she does, her boudoir website is beautiful. Um, her photographs are absolutely off the scale gorgeous. So I would definitely urge anybody to go and have a look there if you're interested and you can really see what we've been talking about because her work does just speak for itself. Um, as we always say, this is audio and you can't see, but um, do go and have a look at her website because it is well worth it. Um, Tiggs Rice, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute joy and a pleasure, and um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. Oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap. That's all for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend because we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then we'd love you very much as it genuinely does help other people to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.